You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Hi, and welcome to another supplemental episode of Women at Warp. This is Sue. Today, I'm bringing you an interview with Brian Volk Weiss, who is the founder and CEO of the Nacelle Company and the director of the docuseries Center Seat 55 Years of Star Trek, which is currently airing on the History Channel in the U.S. We'll talk about that series, his Star Trek fandom, and a few other things as well. Enjoy. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. My favorite named podcast ever, Women Who Warp. I love that. (laughs) Awesome. So often what we do when we uh, have guests on the show is we will ask you to tell us a bit about your history with Star Trek as a fan. You know, I mean, I can break it into like the literal and then I guess the the metaphorical, I guess. Um, I remember being on a chairlift at a ski area in Massachusetts. I don't know how old I was, uh, but I remember my mom uh, telling me all about Star Trek and what it was and everything. That's so that's my first memory. Um, And then, I mean, my entire life philosophy, code, whatever word you want to use, I mean, stems from, you know, the line in Wrath of Khan, I don't believe in the no win scenario. And that it's the closest thing I have to a religion. It's the closest thing I have to a if I was in the military, like a code of conduct. Um, and it's literally written in my will that that will be written on my tombstone. Uh, I, by the way, I got to talk to Nicholas Myers about this yesterday. So, which was very surreal to put it mildly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's Star Trek II changed my life. And that is, if anything, an understatement. So you're a Kirk guy. Yes. Well, to be specific, I'm a Kirk movie guy. Mm. But the weird thing is, like, the Kirk movie guy, like, I feel like that's kind of like who I'd want to be in a fantasy world. But as it relates to who I am in the real world, it's much more Picard than Kirk. If that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. And there's a little switch going there, but, uh, but yeah, it's primarily Kirk. All right. So let's talk about the show, I guess. Uh, it has not aired at the time of our recording, but when this comes out, the first episode of your new docu-series, Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek, will be out on the History Channel. Why 55 years? No one's asked me to question quite like that. I'm, I'm perfect way to answer it. Um, to be completely blunt, uh, I feel like I kind of fucked up what we did for the 50th anniversary. Um, like I'm really embarrassed by it, to be completely honest with you. Um, it's, it's my responsibility, but there was a bunch of variables out of my control. One of which was, you know, I only had two hours to tell the story. Mm-hmm. So this time I had 10 hours. So that was a big part, but 
to be honest with you, we do a show on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us. And the 50th anniversary was made before The Toys That Made Us. And I didn't have the, for lack of a better expression, I didn't have the long leash five years ago that I have now. So have you seen the first episode? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll use it as a microcosm. So the name of the episode is Lucy Loves Trek. And one of the things I noticed about Star Trek, there's a real difference between reading books about the making of Star Trek versus watching documentaries about the making of Star Trek. And the main difference is the books are way more warts and all than the documentaries. So one of the things, if you read the books that is apparent in every single book written about the original series, which as you know, is the beginning of everything, Star Trek, not everything, but Star Trek. Um, oh. <laughs> I guess I'm in the right company. But in the books, it's very, very clear that, and these are my words, not the book's words, but it's very clear that if Gene Roddenberry is the father of Star Trek, Lucille Ball is the fucking mother of Star Trek. It's very hard to have a kid without both. So, like, the documentaries always either ignore what she did completely or they kind of like do this, like the amount of people who say things to me, like if they even knew 80% of people I talked to are like Lucille Ball was involved with Star Trek. But even the 20% that knew of her involvement, it's always something like, oh yeah, I hear she like saved Star Trek. And it's like, no, she didn't save Star Trek. There wouldn't have been anything to save had she not helped make Star Trek. So I tried to do that in the 50th anniversary. And for a variety of reasons, I was forced to cut it out. In the Toys That Made a Star Trek episode, I hinted at it. But it was an episode about toys, so I couldn't get into it. So if you watch the episode, the opening of the episode, I, I did an homage to the opening of Star Trek Three, where it starts with that little blue square that gets bigger and bigger. And it's Lucille Ball banging on the grapes, making the wine in that cliched thing. So this time, finally, five years later, I got to do it the way I always wanted to do it because it's driven me crazy since like probably junior high school that she get it's like, what's his name with Batman not getting any credit, Bill Finger, figure, whatever his name is. So that's to answer your question. I know this is a long rambling answer. I'm sorry. But that's the best way to explain the difference. Like if people like this show or don't like this show, it's mine. I made this. It's what I wanted it to be. The 50th, it, it wasn't what I wanted it to be. That's my favorite kind of answer. And, you know, I, I talk about Lucille Ball's involvement in Star Trek all the time. And I like to tell people she saved, yes, she saved Star Trek, but she saved it three times. Most people don't, don't even know, didn't even know of her involvement. Like it wasn't widely known in the fandom until like the 90s. Yeah. I mean, it, it was like, yeah, it's, it's, 
Listen, it's easy to chalk it up to sexism. I, I honestly don't even think it's sexism. I think it's laziness combined with the fact that Gene Roddenberry outlived her. So I, I think that, first of all, I think Gene was obsessed with PR. I think Lucille Ball was bored with PR by the time Star Trek. Like, th- you got to think about it. Gene's a nobody. Lucille Ball is already the most famous human being alive, practically. So she's bored with PR. He needs to become famous to do his job. Then she dies, I think, 20 years before he did. So he just was able to do all this stuff that, like I said, like, I don't even think she cared at the time because when she died, Star Trek wasn't what it would become. And Gene spent so much time in the 70s at the conventions building up his persona of the great bird of the galaxy. But that, that actually, lead, it leads me into another question I had for you because I know each- Please don't ask me what that means because- The, the great bird of the galaxy? I've been a Star Trek fan for 40 years. Huh. I still don't know what the fuck that means. Do any of us know? I don't think so. I don't, it's so- weird and it's used so frequently and i'm always like what does that mean but anyway sorry go ahead i I know each of the the 10 episodes of the docuseries is like a different chapter of star trek do you spend any time in the the 70s fandom that went off and running or is it all more production based so i'm going to tell you something you may not like it may not be popular but it's It's my doc. I got to do what I wanted to do. I hope people like it. I don't make docs for myself. I do make docs for the public, but at the same time, I don't want to make anything I don't enjoy making. So I just, before I give you this answer, you might hate, I just want to give you my credentials. Uh, I went to Iowa because Kirk's from Iowa. I went to university of Iowa. I mean, because of that, I have a star Trek collection, conservatively seven, eight hundred pieces like my car i literally call it the enterprise so i am a fan of star trek are my credentials do you agree sure can i call myself a fan i'm getting a little nervous about the next part of this answer but yeah all right i don't put fans in any of my docs ever i find it a very 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 boring topic and the ray the reason i find it boring is I call it the magic theory. What that means is if you go to a theater and you watch a magician, it's mind blowing. It's like, how did the magician do that? This is crazy. But if you're watching that same show at home, that's that television. That's the same television you saw dinosaurs walking on. That's the same television you saw RoboCop walking around Detroit. Like the magic doesn't work on a television screen, that type of entertainment, in my opinion. Fandom is the same thing. If you even watch Toys That Made Us, you'll see there's no toys in collections because it doesn't translate. Like there was a doc that came out a couple of years ago about Galaxy Quest. Greatest doc ever. Unless they're talking about the fans. It's like, I get it. You dressed up. I get it. You made your own costume. If I'm at the convention and I see you, 
I'll probably come up to you and ask to take a picture with you. But at home on my television, keep going, move on. Like, I want the scoop. So in our in the show, we don't talk about the fandom at all. We mentioned that the fans saved the show, but I don't know how much you know or don't know. That's not even completely accurate. Like the syndication rating saved the show. That's what saved the show. Regardless of the letter writing campaign, you've got a lot in the in the Star Trek fandom. You had the proliferation of fanzines, which Gene called required reading on the show. Sure. You had a lot of you, you had the beginning of fan conventions. And a lot of these things work together to get the animated series, to get the movies. True. And without whatever you think about the letter writing campaign, which I agree to disagree, Fair. the movement of the fans is what be- turned a television show that lasted three seasons into a franchise that lasted 55 years. 100% agree. But the question I'm answering was, what did we do in the show about the fandom? So mm-hmm. very little. Okay. But there's two, I told you there's two answer, two, two part answer. The other answer is it's been done to death. So a lot of the doc itself is designed to work with all the other docs that have been made. So do we mention it? Yes. Do we dwell on it? No. Okay. Fair. So in those 10 episodes, what other chapters, shall we say, do you focus on? We'll see if I can do this. We got (laughs) got the original series, the animated series, basically Star Trek, basically phase two and Star Trek one, Star Trek two, three, four, Star Trek five and six, then next generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, an episode entirely about starships and due to my own bias, largely Federation. So if you're a big Klingon buff or Jem Hadar, you might not like that episode. Uh, And then we do an episode all about the actors. So, and we got, I mean, it's a deep dive. So we have everybody from Kirstie Alley to like Ike Isaacson. So like it's, it is, it's designed because the other kind of thing that, quote unquote, as a filmmaker, even though I feel silly saying that, um, like, and you'll see this in Toys That Made Us. You'll see this in movies that made us. You'll see this in almost everything we do. Like, let's just use a non-Star Trek reference. Die Hard. Don't get me wrong. We asked Bruce Willis to do our episode. But, like, we didn't need Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis has done 50,000 EPKs, 50,000 DVD extras, you name it. The guy who did all the stunts, he's never been interviewed. Like, that's what we try to do. So I really wanted to get as many actors as possible to tell the story of their experience without hearing Patrick Stewart talking about the toupee they made him wear in the audition. So that's really what we tried to do. But at the same time, like my wife is not a Trekkie at all. And that's the understatement of the the millennium. But I always try to make shows that the significant other of the Trekkie will enjoy. 
So, and I don't know, we may have succeeded. We may have failed. We'll know in two or three days, believe me, people are very vocal about their thoughts, but that's, that's what we try to do. And sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. And I say that not based on my own opinion. I say that based on reading reviews and social media. Mm-hmm. So stopping at enterprise. Yeah. So basically it's what I kind of do is like Lucille and Jean turn the lights on. Rick Berman turns the lights off. And that was inspired by something he actually said, which was like, I literally turned the lights off. Like He's like, I walked into the soundstage the day after they had torn all the sets down. And I was in the giant soundstage that had held the engineering on Next Generation, uh, the promenade on Deep Space Nine, and then the bridge on and a bunch of the other hallways. And now it was just an empty soundstage. And he's like, I literally turned the lights off. So that's that's how I would explain the show in one sentence. Mm-hmm. Do you have plans to examine the, the current era of Trek? So we're in production now. And at the very least, it's going to go through the first JJ movie. So okay. we're like, we've already been interviewed. Like, you know, I don't know if you saw the trailer, but F. Mm-hmm. Murray Abraham's in it. Like, so we are absolutely covering the next generation movies. If I had to guess, we'll do all three J, which is tough for me because I think his first one, it's one of my favorite Star Trek films ever. Uh, not a big fan of the other two. Uh, and that's me being diplomatic. Um, and then we'll probably get into Discovery and Picard. But again, if I can be diplomatic, I would much rather do Lower Decks. I'll leave it at that. Okay. So as you were in production, my understanding is that the the whole series, the docuseries was greenlit during the pandemic. It was greenlit after the pandemic had started. We're still working on it now. And rumor has it, it's still, the pandemic is still going on. So if you were gathering new interviews, what was it like doing that during all of this difference in the world, to put it mildly? Luckily for us, Center Seat was not the first, like we were already in production on other shows. Mm -hmm. So like movies that made us was actually the guinea pig. So by the time we started shooting uh, Center Seat, we kind of knew what we were doing and we had built these special kits we could FedEx to the people. So like when you see Kirstie Alley, we had FedExed her a giant box, like huge Pelican case. And what we did was we would Zoom with her and our production people would be like, and it really, it wasn't Kirstie, it was like, I think her assistant. But our people, our production people would say to someone, okay, open the box. And they would open the box. They'd be like, you see that red sticker? Pull that out. And they would build it themselves. We would get a live feed and we would get every, there was a light kit in it. There was a, a, an odd two recording systems. It would take about 25 minutes to set up. And then I would get on the Zoom and I would do the interview on the Zoom. Then they would pack it back in, everything was color-coded, and then they would FedEx it to the next interview. Oh, wow. And then once that box, we had three of these things, once each box was used five times, 
it would be FedEx back to us. We would download the hard drives and then send it to the next five. That's incredible. It's pretty crazy. I mean, and by the way, between all of the series, over 550 interviews were done this way. More than that. We only had one failure. Oh, wow. But luckily for us, she did a, 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 not only did she do another interview, but because we had done the first interview, the second interview was better than the first, much better. I'm just, I'm blown away by the coordination that that had to take. And I just need to go out of my way to say this to you. I had nothing to do with this. (laughs) Nothing. Our production people, they came up with it. Our production people ran the whole thing. I was watching them in awe. Like your reaction to what I just told you was my reaction when they told me what we were going to do. I love it. So with, with these people who don't give a lot of interviews or don't ever give interviews, how do you convince them to do this one? Well, I had a secret weapon with Rick Berman, Brett Spiner, Kate Mulgrew, and a few other people. Gates McFadden. She's not only a producer on the show, she does the voiceover. Mm-hmm. So we, I do a podcast with her, uh, which means she does a podcast and we're lucky enough to be able to distribute it. But that I knew her from that. So I asked her to be an EP on the show solely because I wanted for the first time in my career to have an EP who had actually been there and knew the people. Not everybody, but most of them. So she, I mean, I love telling the story. I don't know if she likes it or not, but I love telling (laughs) the story. The contract we had with her was literally a list of my legal requirements to her. And like, that's it. Like she was legally required to do nothing. She took it upon herself to like get these people to do the interviews. Like the reason somebody like Rick Burr did it was because she kept calling him over and over and over. Brett Spiner, she took him to lunch afterwards. I offered to buy the lunch. She wouldn't let me. Like, by the way, that sounds like I was there. I was not invited. Uh, <laughs> fair And fair enough, by the way. But like, so that's half of it was Gates was just fucking Gates and fucking kicked ass. Um, and then my least, and probably the only thing I don't like doing as a director is picking the VO. So I had been procrastinating. And then finally, because I talked to her all the time and she literally has a good voice and she's really smart and she's really funny because we re- we use comedy in our shows a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's why she did the VO. And by the way, I mean, that was another contract, but that that's that's how that happened. So that's exhibit A. Exhibit B, let's use Kirstie Alley as the example. You just fucking pound and pound and pound. Like I knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy that, and that's how we got her. But it's, it is the most interesting part of doing these documentaries. Like Sigourney Weaver, easy. Um, Carrie Hen, who plays Newt, hard. Like, you never know. Like, we got Carrie Hen because Sigourney Weaver called her while I was on the Zoom with her. 
And Sigourney literally called Carrie Hand and was like, hey, why aren't you doing this show? So you, that, you never know. You literally never know. All about connections, I guess. Yeah. And not like, <laughs> it's not always even existing connections. It's if there's someone we can't get immediately, I'll always say, who's the agent? Who's the lawyer? Who's the publicist? Who's the manager? And I've been in this business 23 years. Odds are, I know at least one person who knows one of those people. And if that's true, then there's like an 80% chance we can get them. But the other issue we had with this one was COVID. Mm -hmm. So like, there's a bunch of people, big, big, big people we would have had if it wasn't for COVID. So they couldn't handle your, your FedEx setup. Yeah. I mean, they literally like, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't do that kind of thing. And fair enough, fair enough. And I'll be completely honest. If someone wants me to set up equipment 30 years from now about something I've been talking about for 50 years. Yeah. I don't know how excited I would be to do that. If I'm, if I'm being honest, it's an excellent point. <laughs> Like we interviewed Walter Koenig in our studio and I I know I shouldn't say this, but like, I felt bad for the guy. Like how many times can you talk about the monkeys? You know, Mm -hmm. like, like, can you imagine something you did when you were eight? That's all they want to talk to you about now. Like, well, these guys have been, telling the same stories for 50 years, some of them. I know I've been hearing the same stories for 30 years or more going to conventions. So the thing about the so many of the Star Trek docs that we've seen is that they are those, you know, one and a half to two hour self-contained stories and somebody's trying to get a point across. You have so much more time that you don't have to, to cut the stories that we don't hear as much, or you can feature you. You've heard all of these a million times too, I'm sure. So you can feature the stories that we haven't heard. Yes, you're absolutely right. But at the same time, because I think I've seen every single, if not most every single documentary ever made about Star Trek, I know what not to cover. Like I know, like having an hour doc about the original series where 40 minutes are about the first interracial kiss that's been done a thousand times. So it's not like we don't talk about it, but we talk about it for like 30 seconds and then we move on. You know what I mean? Like, again, it's not a doc for a newbie to Star Trek. Like, I don't know about you. I consider myself about a 7.5 out of 10, my fandom. My wife would say I'm a 12, but (laughs) like knowing real 10s, I am not a 10. So we made the dot, we made the series for like six and above. So it's like, do you know who John and Mary Jo Tenuto are? Mm -hmm. One of the greatest compliments I've ever received was they told me after they saw the first episode, there were no mistakes and they learn new stuff. That's impressive. So if those people are fucking learning new shit, we, we did our job like that. That surprised me. I, I didn't even think that would happen. They teach a class about Star Trek for 30 years. In a bigger picture, 
with everything Nacelle does, you do the toys that made us, the movies that made us, and now the, these looks into pop culture history and the making of why do you think it's valuable to document pop culture movements as in addition to things like historical events or sporting events that we would typically see on you know places like the history channel i mean i'll give you two answers if you don't mind yeah one is kind of like my knee-jerk reaction answer and the other one is like let me think about it for a minute my, my knee-jerk reaction is, and I'm, I gotta be honest with you, I'm only speaking about stuff that I've worked on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's valuable. <laughs> I, I make them because I enjoy making them. And as a bonus, it helps pay the bills. But that's, that's I don't know if they're valuable. But let's take for an assumption, because it's a really good question. Let's make for a second, let's assume it is valuable. Um, listen, it's our culture. We're still studying what the Romans did. We're still studying what the the, the Punics did or whatever they're called. Like at some point, thousands of years from now, I'm sure people will be like, what were these people watching? So I guess it's good to do it from that standpoint. But if I'm being completely honest with you, I don't think anything I've been a part of so far really could be considered valuable. I, and I'm not saying that to be humble or anything. I just like Star Trek is valuable. Mm-hmm. A documentary about Star Trek. I don't know. If people think it's valuable, I take that to mean a lot. And I'm very touched by it. But I, I think I'm the last person who could judge my own work is valuable. I think that's fair. Yeah. But then, you know, Christopher Nolan, if he said that about Dunkirk, he's an idiot. Of course, that's a valuable movie. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. Well, I know you don't have a ton of time. I want to ask you, is there anything you want to make sure people know about this series that I have not asked you about? Anytime I get asked that question, I always tell people the same thing. And it's really important to me. I am part of a team a big team. And I deserve some credit for all this shit, but I deserve very far from all the credit for all of it. I mean, it's, there are so many people involved with making shows like this that they, I I just, so many people deserve credit. So I just always want everybody to know, obviously you can't have three dozen people here right now talking to you. There needs to be a spokesperson. I'm the director. I sold it. I created it, quote unquote, because I actually also don't think documentaries can be created. But that's another thing. I'm splitting hairs. But it's I'm I'm a very blessed person that I work with the people that I work with. And really blessed because in show business, this is very unusual. I get to work with these people over and over and over again. That's lovely. So is it the same team that's working on all of Nacelle's different projects? For the most part, yes. I mean, we have a core team that I've been working with for almost five years straight. Oh, wow. And that in Hollywood years, I mean, that's like telling you, yeah, I've worked with them for 217 years. Like (laughs) to be able to work with the same people over and over again as an independent production company, that's very lucky. Well, from an outsider view, it seems to me, or it felt to me at the time, 
that Nacelle sort of like burst onto the scene with the toys that made us. And then everybody in, that I knew was talking about it. And then you've got the, the movies and the Star Trek docuseries, but I know that's not how it actually happens. You don't, overnight success is not really a thing. So how did you, how did you get there? Well, you're, you're absolutely right about that. And I used to be a manager. And what I used to always say about my clients was, or about any actor is an overnight sensation takes a lifetime to achieve. Um, so you're absolutely right about that. But to your point, Toys That Made Us really was for us as a company, a BCAD moment. Because before Toys That Made Us, I sold shows, like I did a lot of research about what buyers wanted. And then I made shows that they wanted. That's how I paid the bills. Toys That Made Us was the first show where I took a passion and made it as a show. And then you're not going to believe this. I hope you're sitting down. Apparently, if you're excited about what you're making, it comes out better. Incredible. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) So Toys That Made Us was the first show. I mean, I probably sold... 18 to 24 shows before Toys That Made Us. I guarantee you, you haven't heard of a goddamn one of them. And part of the reason for that is not a single one of them got a second season. Every single show starting with Toys That Made Us has had at least a second season. So now, after Toys That Made Us, we only try to sell stuff we're excited about. And our ratio of pitches to sales has gone down tremendously. Mm. But our ratio of shows that get second seasons has gone up exponentially. I love that story. That's great. Wow. So as I wrap it up, I want to make sure that I get everything right. At the time of this release, the first episode of Center Seat has aired on History Channel. There will be three more airing on History Channel on Friday nights. And six additional episodes available on History Vault at historyvault.com. I hear there is an app for Apple devices for people in Canada to watch uh, the History Vault app. Do you know, is there a way for non-US or Canada residents to watch the series? Yes. And it depends on the country. So I don't mean to be cagey. But at some point in the near future, there is a company called Bell in Canada, and it will be on Bell. Great. Any any news for Europe? Any distribution partners? IMDb in England, ProSieben in Germany. I'm so impressed right now. <laughs> I'm impressed too, because I cannot even believe I remember these names. Uh, even I, not even the names, like the, I don't. Yeah, and I'm out. By the way, it, it's going to be in the Netherlands. It's going to be in Spain. It's yeah. It's going to be great. It's not going to be everywhere, but it'll be in probably seventy percent of the world. And then there's going to be a Blu-ray. We're doing a podcast after show. We have a book coming out. So. All the podcast comes out tomorrow too. So the center seat after show, I know it's not the show. So, but the Blu-ray will come out next year and the Blu-ray will have everything. One of the things I'm thinking of doing is for certain interviews, like not to keep going back to Kirstie Alley, but her interview <laughs> is like bonkers. Good. 
Um, I'm thinking of just putting the whole interview as a deep, as an extra. Like, why not? Rick Berman never does interviews. Like, why not put the whole thing on a on a disc? So I'm I'm thinking of doing that, but there will be a Blu-ray so everybody can watch it. Um, and eventually it'll be everywhere, um, even in the US and Canada. So ultimately it probably will be on Amazon one day, but years from now, many, many years from now. Yeah, I really I hope people like it. It it we put a lot of love into it. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us and for talking about the show. Thank you. One more time for good measure, Center Seat 55 Years of Star Trek is airing on the History Channel and HistoryVault.com in the U.S. For other parts of the world, please check your local listings. We'll link out to HistoryVault.com and to the After Show podcast in our show notes. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit WomenAtWarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at WomenAtWarp. You can also email us at crew at WomenAtWarp.com. And for more from Roddenberry Podcasts, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.